Where are we going in in these 10 verses of James? We're gonna be looking at a topic or at a subject called harmartiology. And you might be saying, hum what? Hum what? Harmartiology. If you go to seminary, it's a term you'd hear in a systematic theology class. Harmartia is a Greek word which means to miss the mark. And when that word shows up in our Bible, it's translated as sin. Sin simply means to misfire. God says, here's the bullseye, we depart from it, and that's sin. The biblical study of sin has always been important for the church, guys. In fact, it's very, very close to the essence of why we gather on Sundays in general. In James 4, 1 through 10, we're gonna be looking at the questions that would show up in a harmartiology class, right? Questions like, where does sin originate from? What is sin's effect on us? What are the implications of sin in our lives? How does God feel about sin? How does God deal with sin? These are not just questions that pertain to James chapter four. These are questions that really are at the heart of this entire book. What is sin? What are the implications of sin? How does God feel about it? And how does God ultimately deal with sin? That is the greater story of the Bible. And we've got a a condensed look at that in our 10 verses this morning. And James in chapter four, verse one, he's gonna kick us off with a question. He's gonna basically say, hey, what's wrong with you guys? What's the problem? Why are you quarreling? In fact, it specifically says, what is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Chapter four, verse one. So what is our problem? Why are we fighting? Why are we not getting along very well? Well, if you were to throw that exact question to a room full of philosophers, you'd get some pretty entertaining answers. Right, so let's just say you lock 50 philosophers into a room and you pose this question that James poses to us in verse one. What would they say is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among us? Well, I think Karl Marx would say that the problem is class warfare. You guys are not getting along very well because some of you own private property, some of you do not. It's resulted in social distinctions. That's why you're not getting along very well. Thank you, Karl. If you could talk to Sigmund Freud, Sigmund, why are we not getting along very well? There's some kids in the room, so I'll make this PG. Sigmund Freud would say, you have misunderstood your sexual desires. Thank you, Sigmund. And we could go through others. Immanuel Kant, we could look at Voltaire, we could look at Schopenhauer, we could look at Nietzsche, David Hume. All of the philosophers would have a different answer to the question, why are you not getting along very well? But James is gonna answer this a little differently than all of them. I'll read verses one through three. What's the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James is saying you lust, you desire, you envy, you fight, Why? It's because you are trying to obtain your pleasures. Now, said another way, we kind of move throughout life trying to find lasting satisfaction, right? We're trying to find the fulfillment of our deepest desires, the gratification of our deepest longings that are inside our hearts. And James, in this morning's text, he's quick to note that sometimes these pursuits go down unhealthy roads, Right? He talks about lust, he talks about envy, he talks about quarreling, he talks about murder. Right? Sometimes the 
pursuit to gratify our desires results in detriment to others. And certainly there are times when the pursuit of these desires uh, results in us parting ways with God's will, right? We sometimes pursue them in ways that is to the exclusion of God. Now, I don't know what pursuit of satisfaction looks like in your life, but I know what it's looked like in mine. There's been times in my life when I've been trying to pursue the gratification of some desire, and I knew that it was willful disobedience against God. I'm not proud of this, but I feel like it would be imbalanced this morning if I didn't acknowledge this before you. Sometimes I would kind of say, Lord, would you mind looking the other way while I do this? I knew I was marching out of step with God's will. And there's been other times in my life, quite frankly, when uh, the pursuit of my desires was in line with what I felt was I'm trying to, trying to do what a, a Christian should do. I've been trying to align my actions with God's will. But then sometimes something just happens. Like I'll just say something or I'll just do something and I'd be like, man, where did that come from? Was that me that just said that? Did I really just do that? It'd be almost like someone else took over the switchboard or an alien briefly took over my body. I can't even believe it was me that did that. See, I think all of us, in our desire to pursue our longings, sometimes we discover that we lack the control, we lack the, or we lack the discipline to do that which we know we ought to do. We're weak. Now, Francis of Assisi, he's a saint that lived in, I think it was the 1100s. I came across some of his writings at seminary. In one of his writings, uh, he had a fun, affectionate term, which I almost questioned putting into my teaching notes, and you'll see why, but I'm gonna do it anyways. Francis of Assisi had a nickname for his body. He called it Brother Ass. And it goes like this. Have any of you ever tried to give a donkey some instructions? Have you ever tried to get a donkey to do something, right? Now, Brentwood and Franklin that were, this is an urban area now. It used to be a rural area. So my guess is many of you have not had interactions with donkeys, but it would go something like this. If you say, come on, donkey, get going. Let's get moving. It would just kind of stare at you. Right, if, if the donkey's moving, he's like, whoa, whoa, donkey, slow down, stop. It would just keep going on up ahead, right? Francis of Assisi is saying, basically, that's us. You see, we hear the instructions. We know what to do. The challenge is in getting us to actually do it, right? And to give you an example of this, I can sit down with someone that's having problems in their marriage. I can sit down with a couple, and I can look over at the husband and say, hey, let me ask you something. What do you think makes for a great husband? And you know what? When he gives me an answer, I'll usually get a really good answer. And then I can turn to the wife and say, hey, tell me, tell me what makes for a godly wife. And I'll get a really good answer, right? Our problem, my friends, isn't information. We know what to do. The problem is what? Ah, ah, ah. That's our problem. Right? The problem is getting our body to do the thing that our mind knows is right. And this condition, this donkey status, it's universal. We all feel it. And Paul speaks to this in Romans 7. Let me read to you Romans 7. You don't need to turn there. I'll just give you a quick reading of it. In Romans 7, he says, the will to do good is present within me, but the doing of good is not. For the good I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. He goes on to say, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, right? I agree with it, but I see a different law in the members of my body, 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Paul is basically saying, I'm a walking civil war. I see myself in my mind wanting to do one thing, agreeing with the law of God up here, but I do not see myself, in fact, doing it. He saw himself doing something very, very different. Again, this donkey status, which Paul affirms and we all know to be true of ourselves, this is called depravity. This is called your sin nature, and you can thank your very oldest relatives for it. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and disobeyed God's instructions and what God expected of their conduct, they rebelled against him, right? And uh, God said in Genesis, I think it was 2.17, he said, in the day that you take of the fruit, you will surely die. Well, they didn't die physically when they took the fruit, but they died spiritually instantly because there was a separation between mankind and God that would last from henceforth and would become our inheritance from our ancestors. Now, to bring this back to the context of James, when James says, hey, what's your problem? Why are you quarreling? Well, we might look at our quarrel and say, well, hey, I'm not getting along well with my sister-in-law because she's nosy. She's putting her nose where it doesn't belong. She should stay out of my business. Or you might say, hey, I'm not getting along well with my boss. My boss has unrealistic expectations for me. My quarrel, my problem is my boss. Some of the kids in the room might say, listen, my quarrel is that my parents forgot what it's like to be a middle schooler. They don't understand. Well, James hears all of those, guys, and those are symptoms, but those are not the disease. The disease, my friends, is sin. And that is point number one this morning. What is your problem? Your problem is sin. Now, point number two, the next section where I want to go to in our time together this morning is this. It's that God grieves our sin. But do you? Point number two is God grieves our sin, but do you? You see, in our text this morning, we get a glimpse of how God feels towards our wayward conduct. When our actions are not in line with what he desires for us, right? When our, when our behaviors are a little bit against his will and they more align with the standard of the culture or the world as it's described in James, right? When that happens, when our behaviors march out of step with what he expects of us, the accusation is pretty stout. He calls us adulterers. Look at verse four in your text this morning. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility against God or towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose when it says that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? Guys, he calls us adulterers. Holy cow, if, you, if you've been watching the cadence of the tone in the book of James, and this might be hard to see because we take this in such small bites every week, but if you were to read James in one sitting, it would take you about 20 minutes, you'd see that he affectionately addresses his audience this following way. He says, my beloved brothers, my brethren. He, three or four or five times before chapter four, he's calling his audience, my beloved brothers. And now in verse chapter four, uh, verse four, it's like a slap across the face. You adulteresses. I'd say the tone has changed a little in this section of the letter. Well, is this a little harsh to call us an adulteress? Well, 
Guys, let me tell you where I think James is coming from this morning. If you have prayed to receive Christ in your life, if you have prayed the sinner's prayer and you've confessed your sin before him and you've invited the Lord to wash you of your sin and you've installed him into your life as Lord and as Savior, right? That means that you have become the bride of Christ. You have a union with him now. You see, in that sinner's prayer, in that time that you invited Christ to come in and to cleanse you and to wash you of your sin, in that moment, he redeemed us. Redeemed simply means to be bought back. Jesus bought you back through the blood of Christ. Also in that process, he justified us. Justification, my friends, is a legal term whereby God declares the sinner sinless and treats him as such. We are redeemed. We are justified. We're no longer guilty before a holy God, right? When we stand before God on judgment day, without the blood of Christ, we are guilty and we deserve condemnation and punishment. But Jesus has effectively acquitted us of our guilt, not by dismissing the penalty of sin, but assuming the penalty of sin upon himself. You guys, he paid a ransom for you, right? He's even given you and given me the Holy Spirit. It's a gift. It's like a wedding ring. The Holy Spirit resides in us, and Scripture says the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Christ has paid a very high price for your rescue. We belong to him, and he expects our fidelity. He expects, my friends, our loyalty. And when we wander away from him, right, when we get friendly with the world and we stray from what God would have from us, you need to know that we break his heart, right? He grieves when he sees us wandering and cozying up to the world and making friendly with the world, marching away from fellowship with him. Why? Because God is an enormously emotional being. Sometimes we think of God as being this, this empty, uh, you know, impersonal, distant thing. It's, he's not. God is a person. He's an intensely emotional, passionate, committed person. And you need to know that your conduct matters to him. Your behavior resonates in his heart. And when we march away from him, when we pursue other loves, he feels that the way that your spouse would the way that you would if your spouse wandered from you. Now, I've been married 17 years. Uh, my wife and my uh, kiddos were here in the eight o'clock service this morning. Let me give you a, an, an analogy here. Let me give you an example. If I was to tell my beautiful wife, Lynn, if I was to say to her, hey, listen, babe, I'm, I'm going out Wednesday night this week with that lady from work. Uh, I don't know when I'll be home, uh, but don't wait up. But I'm going out Wednesday night with that lady from work. But don't worry. I'll be fully loyal to you the other six days this week. I'll be all yours the other six days. How would that go over in my house? How would that go over in your house? Would Lynn say, oh yeah, I'm fine with this arrangement. That sounds just right. Or would she say, the heck you are? She would say, listen, I pledged myself to you at the altar when you pledged yourself to me. I am exclusive and loyal to you and you're exclusive and loyal to me. We pledge to have no other loves. And if you go out with that woman even one time, you and me is gonna fight. That would be how it'd be in my house. I don't know how it'd be in yours. Guys, it's the same in our marriage covenant with God. God's heart gets stirred up 
when he sees us following the ways of the world and letting our hearts be lured away by the influence of the world. And yeah, you know what? God gets jealous. And some people are like, seriously? God it's, it gets jealous? Isn't that an emotion based in fear and insecurity? No, guys, jealousy is exactly what's supposed to be present in a marriage. If I told Lynn, hey, I'm going out Wednesday night, she would say, uh-uh, I jealously desire you. No, you're not. Jealousy is what's present in a love that's exclusive between two people. Let me give you a quick uh, insight into this from John, uh, sorry, from, uh, John Piper, who uh, wrote a little uh, paragraph on God's jealousy that to me was helpful in understanding this idea. Piper says, God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife, of a queen. His jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness but from a holy indignation at having his honor and power and mercy scorned by the faithlessness of a fickle spouse. That's helpful to me. God feels it in his heart when we wander away from him. Now, when we wander, and we all do, how does God desire for us to respond when we have found ourselves wandering. Skip just a little bit ahead in your text this morning. Go up to verse eight and nine. This is what God says, that the way that we are supposed to respond when we are found being faithless, when we're found being unfaithful. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. God is saying, guys, you need to feel it right here when you have been unfaithful towards God. He says, cleanse your hands. Stop doing what you're doing that's hurting our relationship. Purify your hearts, right? Come to Christ for forgiveness. But then after that, he wants you to feel towards your sin the way that he does. Grieve, mourn, wail, Get that smirk off your face. Turn your laughter into mourning. Sin is not a laughing matter. God grieves it, and so should we. Guys, I'm a father. I've got two beautiful little girls. They're 13 and 15 now, so they're no longer little. They don't like me referring to them as little. But as a daddy, I've got clear memories of the times when I was raising them, and I was trying to teach them right from wrong. And I'm not sure how your house is, but I had two little girls with starkly different personalities and they responded to my correction very differently. In the area of discipline, I can give you two different examples which for me become a lesson in this whole subject. Now, with one of my kiddos, and uh, one of them was sitting here this morning, so I'm glad she's not here in second service, right? So my children's will remain nameless. Well, they'll be cloaked under anonymity so that uh, we won't know who's who. But one of my children had a fascinating response. You see, when she broke the rules, and when I had to engage her and address her on her conduct, I would simply have to do this. I would say, little girl, you've broken one of mommy and daddy's rules. And you need to know that daddy's disappointed in you. And when I'd look at her little face, 
almost instantly, the tears would start to come down. And I could see her lower lip start to quiver. And she'd say, I'm sorry, Daddy. And she'd reach up to me and want to give me a big hug. The sheer fact that Daddy was disappointed in her behavior was enough. I knew I had her heart. It was enough for me to express disappointment, and that was enough to get her back on the right track in terms of behavior. Now, my other child, slightly different case study. The experience with her was a little bit different. Let me explain. When she would break one of our rules, and it would seem sometimes she would do this just for the sheer entertainment value of it, I would get with her and I'd say, listen, you have broken one of mommy and daddy's rules. And her response would be something like, daddy, can you hurry up and swap my behind so I can get back to watching Dora the Explorer? And as a parent, I'm like, you've got to be kidding. And she was just little. And I look at my wife, Lynn, and say, what do we do in this situation? And one of them became more acquainted with discipline than the other, as you would probably expect. One of them needed a slightly harder path of correction and teaching so that we could drive our point home. Point is this. Guys, becoming a father has taught me what I feel is a lot about the heart of God. I expect if you have kids, you would have had a similar journey. I want my kids to value right living. I want them to not only know what's expected of them, I want them to choose to do it. And I want them to feel emotionally distraught when they know they've disappointed their father. Now, I know as a daddy with little girls, that's what I want for my children. I want them to grieve when they've stepped out of line with me because I know that then I have their heart and then correction is more likely to happen that they will, they will realign themselves the way that they need to. But I have to ask you a question this morning. And quite frankly, I have to ask me a question this morning. If that's the will of an earthly father to his child, is that not also the will of the heavenly father to us? And let me ask you guys this morning, how high a priority is it in your life? to make sure that your conduct lines up with the will of your heavenly father? And how much do you hurt and do you grieve in your heart when you know that your actions have disappointed him? Do you respond the way that you would want your child to respond? Or do you go back to watching Dora the Explorer? We want our kids to feel it right here when we sin, when they sin. God wants us to feel it right here when we sin. But how many of us do? How many of us just keep on moving, getting right back to what you've been doing, and you kind of are indifferent towards it? You're kind of just, yeah, whatever, let's keep going. I'll deal with that later. My friends, God desires our heart in this. And the text says we are to grieve, mourn, and weep over our sins. But I know that many of us do not. And so my point number two this morning is that God grieves our sin, but do we? Now, point three, and this is where we're gonna wind our time down together this morning is this. Point number three is that God gives us greater grace and that when we are humbled, he will lift us up. How does God address our rebellion? You can find it in verse six in your text this morning. When we rebel, it says that God gives us greater grace. He knows that we will rebel. He knows that we, our conduct will not be sinless. He knows that. And when that happens, he meets us with grace. 
And if we're talking about grace this morning, some of us still think that grace is that little prayer we say before dinner or before breakfast. Grace actually has a definition, two words. Grace is unmerited favor. It's when you get what you don't deserve. And thank goodness that that is how God approaches us. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of stories in our Bible giving examples of how God does not give us what we justly deserve, but rather instead of that, of God extending to us greater grace. And I could have gone to literally dozens of examples of stories in the Bible. I gotta tell you that when I read these stories of grace in the Bible, I don't know what it is. Something in me just stirs. I can read these stories over and over again. I can hear them read out loud to me over and over again. And like a child finding that story before bedtime that they love, Daddy, tell me again. I never get tired of reading these stories of grace. I don't know if you're the same way, but I resonate with them because I feel like with a slightly different plot line and a slightly different character, that's me. That's me. The woman who was caught in adultery and is about to get stoned but doesn't get the punishment she deserves. No, Jesus shows up and he extends to her greater grace, right? I wanna share just one of the stories in the Bible with you this morning. It's a story you've all heard of before. I thought it'd be really cool and nifty to share with you some obscure story from the Old Testament, but I knew this would be near the end of my message and so I thought time would work against me. So I'm choosing to highlight a story you've all heard before because it resonates with all of us. It's found in Luke 15 and it's the story of the lost son. There is a father he has two sons. One of his sons comes up to him and he says, Father, I would like my share of the inheritance. Now, the request was offensive enough. Why? Because an inheritance, as you know, is never activated until death. So when a son goes to his father and says, Daddy, I'd like my share of the inheritance, he's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. The father accommodates the request and gives his son his share of the inheritance. And the son goes off and spends the money on big living, right? To use the terminology of James, the son gets cozy with the ways of the world and he spends it on debaucherous living. And we all know the story. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard the story. What happens? Well, the son runs out of cash. He runs out of money. And he discovers now, I gotta figure out how to feed myself now that I'm out of cash. So he goes and he gets a job. And he goes to work for somebody and he finds that when he goes to work for this person that even the money that he's being paid, it's not sufficient enough for him to be able to feed himself. And so he's like, holy cow, how am I gonna survive? And he realizes, okay, wait a minute. My father's servants live better than this. My father's hired help, his slaves live better than me right now. And he says, I think I need to go home. And so he decides, okay, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna tell my father that I am no longer even worthy to be called his son. I'm gonna beg his forgiveness. I'm gonna throw myself at his feet and say, Father, could you please make me one of your servants? And you can just appreciate as he turns towards home, as he's marching towards home, he's rehearsing the speech over and over and over again, how exactly he's gonna say what he plans to say to his dad. But the story is gripping. As soon as he gets to the property line, the father sees him. The father wraps his arms around his son before the son can even get the speech off his lips. And he says, you're home. The father puts a robe around him, puts a ring on his finger and declares a celebration. That's the heart of God towards us as rebels. 
towards us that have sinned against him. My friends, God will receive us back because he is all about giving greater grace. But we've gotta go home. That's a point I wanna resonate this morning. We have to acknowledge our brokenness. We have to see our destitute state. We have to grieve where we are and we have to go home. Now I've got one last story I wanna share with you this morning and then we'll wrap up. There's a university in Wilmore, Kentucky. It used to be called Asbury Theological Seminary, named after a famous Methodist preacher. Today, it's just called Asbury University. I know there's a number of people at Fellowship that have actually gone to school there. Well, like other Christian colleges and universities, they've got a mandatory student chapel, right? So there's kind of a, the equivalent of a church service that they have on campus that the students are required to attend every single week. And at one of these chapel services... Uh, at the end of the time together, the speaker up front said simply, does anyone else have something they would like to share before we dismiss this morning? And you know what? A guy in the back stood up. And he said, I'd like to say something. He said, I became a Christian in high school. And I've been attending this seminary for a number of years. And I've got to tell you that I've been sort of going through the motions. I've been getting drunk in the evenings, and I've been cheating on some of my tests. And I just wanted to tell all of you that that's sin in my life. And I want to apologize to the seminary. I want to apologize to God. And I want to acknowledge this and apologize to my professors. And his voice began to crack. The tears started to flow down his cheek, and he sat down. And it was silent in the room. We were no longer talking about theology were we? Well, you know what happened next? Another girl over in the corner stood up and she said, I'd like to share something. And she confessed her sin and she sat down. You know what happened next? The unthinkable. A professor stood up and he said, I've been bitter towards some of the criticism that has come my way from some of my peers. I want to let you know that because I want to confess it as sin because I know it as that. It's wrong on my part. I've been wrong towards others and towards God, and I need to be responsible. You guys, this normally 30-minute chapel service went on for hours as one by one by one. People felt a grief of their sin. They felt a conviction from the Holy Spirit to stand up and to acknowledge their sin for what it was. And my friends, revival swept the campus. Revival swept the entire campus. It wasn't because they were dealing with any high doctrine in a theology classroom, right? It was because of a clear sense of guilt towards God. It was an acknowledgement of their personal offense that drove this revival. It's taking the sin that's real in all of our lives and dragging it out from the darkness, putting it in the light so we can deal with it. All of us, wrestle with sin. All of us prefer to keep it back here in the darkness. When we take that sin, call it for what it is, say, I'm gonna wrestle this thing to the ground. And one of the ways I'm gonna do that is I'm gonna confess it. I'm gonna acknowledge it before God, before others, and I'm gonna confess it right now. When that happens, God says in our text this morning that God opposes the proud, but he lifts up the humble. Guys, when we with contrite hearts approach our heavenly father and we call our sin for what it is, he can work with us. He will stir in us 
and bring us joy and lift us up. My friends, when that happens to an individual, it's regeneration. When that happens in a church, when that happens in a community, it's called revival. When that happens in a culture, it's called reformation. My friends, all of us need to feel the weight of our sin. We need to grieve the way that God grieves towards our sin. We need to not be indifferent. This needs to not be an intellectual exercise. We need to feel the weight of our sin to know in our hearts the disappointment that we've caused God. Because when he sees you engaging in sin, you break his heart. He longs for you to come home because he sees that you've wandered. He sees that you've strayed. And he's wondering when you're gonna come home. And when you turn for home, his arms are open and he's waiting to give you a ring and a robe and to declare a celebration. This needs to break us, guys. We need to feel our sin. And I think in our culture today, this is becoming something that's increasingly harder and harder for us. I wanna invite you this morning to take that first step towards home. If there's some distance between you and God because you've allowed sin into your life, then it's there and you know it's become a dividing influence between yourself and your relationship with God. I want you to deal with that this morning. I want you to do business with God this morning, right now. I want you to take that sin which is hiding in the dark and I want you to drag it out and put it in the light. And I want you to confess before your heavenly father this morning that you have offended him and that you have harmed the relationship. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come up this morning as has been our habit as we've been working through the book of James. If there's some volunteers that'll come forth and will be willing to pray with us this morning, I invite you to join them. I invite you to come up front and pray uh, with these prayer volunteers. I invite you to join us on the front steps this morning if you wanna pray up here. If you wanna just do business with God quietly where you are in the silence of your thoughts with him, I invite you to do that as well. But my friends, I think many of us in this room, I think most of us in this room, we've got some business to take care of with God this morning. Because I think if we're honest, we would say that we are not heartbroken over our sin. And that's where God wants us to be. That's where we need to be because that is the first step towards home. Would you take 60 seconds this morning, just pray on your own where you're at. Invite God to examine you. Would you confess your sins before the Lord and would you acknowledge it for what it is before him? And I'll close us in prayer afterwards. Lord, would you break our hearts this morning? Would you help us to see sin the way that you see sin, as something that's an affront to you, as something that's harmful in our relationship with you, as something, Lord, that resonates as infidelity towards you? Father, our hearts are heavy because we know we've offended you. 
Lord, we're repentant of that. Lord, we ask forgiveness for that. But Lord, I pray that you would increase our emotional response to sin. Help us, Lord, to be offended by it the way that you are. And Lord, I pray that as we approach the throne of grace this morning, Lord, we do so with heavy hearts, but we're grateful, Lord, that you give us the opportunity to do exactly this. Lord, you don't cast us away. You don't throw us out. You don't discard us and, and um, uh, cast us out because of our sin. Lord, we remain your sons and your daughters. You love us. And Lord, we know that you will forgive us. We know that you have promised to do so, that you've extended the blood of Christ to us to restore us. But Lord, we know that you need us to come home. And so, Father, I pray this morning would be the beginning of that work. Would you help us to grieve our sin and to feel the weight of it? And Lord, as we begin again today, Lord, would you help us to feel that weight so that we could please you with our actions? And Lord, I'm grateful, Father, for the blood of Christ that gives us that second opportunity every time we fall. Lord, we thank you for this morning. I pray, Lord, that hearts would be stirred towards you. And Lord, we're grateful for your son, without whom we would be lost. In your precious name we pray, amen.